So, Truby, I'm giving you back to the pound. It's Thursday, January 23rd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master's Student in Civil Engineering and CO2 Crusader, and with me today is Molly Quell, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Brexit Eavesdropper. That's a good one. And Panda Sex... Uh, expert. Expert. Yeah, Panda Song Sex Expert. Panda Song... Panda sex song expert. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what you are. Our third regular podcast host, Gordon Derek, isn't here today. He's probably having a romantic weekend in Drenthe with the Brexit Muppet. In the basement of a farmhouse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Paul, why are we recording on Thursday? Um, because we have some scheduling issues tomorrow morning when we usually record. So we had to be creative and... I am spending now my Thursday evening at your house. It's terrible. It is terrible. I'm really tired, so I don't know how great this show is going to go. You you asked me on several occasions what uh, some Dutch words were in English. I can example, no longer think in English, so this uh, is a problem. Einstation, you couldn't remember? Yeah, I couldn't remember Einstation. And also Overstopper. Yeah. We had a we had a, we had some train related uh, we conversation the train. Uh, yeah. today. But you are a Brexit eavesdropper. Tell us uh, what that's all about. This is so funny. So I was in Luxembourg for work. I've been, I was in Luxembourg for most of this week. And one of the nights I was sitting in the hotel restaurant having dinner by myself because I'm there for work by myself. And uh, what did you have? Uh, the vegetarian risotto, which was very nice. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, and uh, the table, there was like a large table of presumably colleagues um, who were all British sort of sitting across from me. And they got into an interesting discussion about saunas. Um, saunas? And, yes, saunas. They got into this that discussion. That does not sound like an interesting discussion. Well, they got into this discussion because there was a discussion about whether or not the hotel had a sauna. And then there was a discussion okay. about using saunas. Yes. And then some guy was like, yeah, I went to the Netherlands once. And they had nude saunas. And one of the British women literally gasped, like actual gasping. And then he was like, and they're mixed gendered. And I honestly, I thought they were going to have to get fainting salts for like half of this table. So first everyone was in disbelief and then everyone was shocked and outraged and appalled. Um, and then one of the guys at the table said, you know, this is why we need Brexit because we're not like these Europeans. <laughs> and I thought that that summed things up pretty good. <laughs> I, I always assumed that all saunas were... No. Uh, no. Well, mixed gendered, not. No. But, hmm. No. Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm never go there, so that's all fine for me. I mean, I've also been to saunas in other places in Northern Europe, like in Finland and in Sweden, yeah. where they are also mixed gendered and nude. Um, so yeah. it's not just a universally Dutch thing. Okay, but it's, it's more certainly, like a Northern European. I think thing. it's a Northern European thing. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, Interesting. So you know, if Dutch people could just keep their bathing suits on in the sauna, Brexit wouldn't have happened. <laughs> it's all our fault. It's your fault. Yes, yes, I I acknowledge that. Yeah, and. Uh, have you taken up uh, Greta Thunberg's new uh, mission? <laughs> Is that what you're uh, crusading against, Paul? Well, no, it's it's not not so much the CO2 emissions that I'm crusading against. It's more the spelling of CO2. Yes. Because I was watching the 8 o'clock news in the Netherlands. and As you do. If as you, you are do, an integrated Dutch person. If you are person. an integrated Dutch person, you always have to watch the NOS 8 Uur Journal. Yes. Um, and, you know, they have these big screens in the background where they show some images about what they're going to talk about. And they were talking about CO2 emissions. But in Instead of CO C, instead of CO underscore two, subscript two, yeah, they wrote CO squared. Okay, that's slightly different. That's slightly different. Yeah. It's completely wrong. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, but don't you the also get mad if people down, wrote like literally CO and then just the number I two? I am not. I'm not. I'm not. No, I'm not opposed to that because I know that if you are just writing a tweet or a message, then it's difficult and it's time consuming to look up to do the, the underscript too. Yeah. Um, but if you are, I don't know, the Metrological Institute and you write a tweet about CO2, then... Fair enough. You, sh you should just write it in the correct I chemical way. I don't disagree with you. Um, but CO 
large two I can accept, but C O squared that just means that you don't understand anything of it. No. No, that's true. So I was very, very, very Annoyed. irritated by that. And no. I ranted about it on Twitter. And that got some traction. So As. apparently people agreed with me. And it wasn't the first time that they did this. I, I caught them on several occasions that they wrote it as CO, CO squared. Somebody needs to give the Meteorological Association like a style guide that instructs them on how to do these things. Yes, or a 101 uh, on chemistry. I mean, basic. You know, I feel like one of these things is easier than the other. Indeed. Speaking of things not being easy, what's our op-hef of the week? Hmm. Our op-hef of the week is about the annual Depression Gala. That sounds like a great place to go. Um, sounds like a lot of fun. It is, yeah. It's held every year on Blue Monday, mm-hmm. because that's uh, topical. Uh, and this uh, it's a charity event, and it was first uh, organized in 2016 uh, in order to raise awareness for depression and encourage especially young people to talk about depression and uh, other related phenomena such as suicide and other uh, mental health problems. The gala was so successful that from 2017 it was broadcasted on live television and many people, including celebrities, actors and singers, went on stage and and talked about uh, their experiences with depression. The organization received uh, 300,000 euros from the government to help organize the event and also to distribute information packs to 500 schools and to set up a sort of buddy system for vulnerable children who uh, suffer from depression. So it sounds like it's... Going great. It's going great. Where's the op-half? Newsur revealed this week that these projects received no money from the organization and that all the money was instead spent on producing the TV show, on management costs and on catering. Oops. Um, the news sparked outrage by people on social media uh, and among the many people who went on stage, uh, they were mad as well, of course, of because course. They, they... It reflects badly on them. It reflects badly on them and they went on stage and they, 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 they were very vulnerable there, of course. They opened up about very personal stuff. Um, this year's gala, however, did went through uh, despite a number of celebrities who pulled back from the event. Yeah, so yeah, a lot of... Op- I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of these huge charities like the Red Cross right. and... Uh, uh, the Red Cross Nova. does does mostly good does good work, but there they are do a good number work. That, but yeah. but they have these managers who yeah. earn a lot of money. Yeah. They earn hundreds and hundreds of thousands of euros every year. I mean, okay, it's a huge organization. You need people who can manage uh, it. can manage it, and yeah. that costs a lot of money, of course. But yeah. still, it it feels a bit weird if you donate a lot of money to a charity and then you see all of a sudden that these managers they they earn so much money. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, there's a number of websites out there that you can use to see like what proportion of charities budgets goes to like administrative costs, basically. And oh, really? Versus that. Yeah. yeah, it's good that it's tracked. But this is just very embarrassing for yeah. this entire uh, charity and this organization that all of this money and it was also not not only the subsidies, but also a lot of people donated to yeah, it. And of course, the tickets for this for this gala was also were also quite expensive. The idea was that these tickets are so expensive because all the money that are that, that is, is earned going to help. is going to help these people who suffer from depression. But yeah, so it's a lot of opf, and um, it's probably uh, not the end of the opf. We will hear a lot more about this. I'm sure. Investigators from the Dutch Safety Board played down the importance of design and safety flaws following the crash of a Boeing 737 near Amsterdam in February 2009, following pressure from Boeing and US officials, according to the New York Times. The official report into the crash blamed the pilots for failing to react properly when a faulty altitude meter led to the engine shutting down and causing the plane to appear to drop out of the sky as it was coming in to land. Nine people, including the pilots, died in the crash. The New York Times, however, says it has evidence showing decisions by Boeing, including risky design choices and faulty safety assessments, also contributed to the accident. The paper claims uh, the Dutch safety board either excluded or played down criticism of the manufacturer in its final report. This happened after the safety board was pressured by Boeing and officials from the Federal Aviation Association, according to the newspaper. This would confirm a January 2010 report published by the Telegraph, who said uh, the pilots of the Turkish Airlines plane were largely not to blame for the accident. Uh, The Telegraph said a preliminary report by the safety board contained heavy criticism of aircraft manufacturer Boeing and pointed out that the company was aware of the problems with the altitude meters. However, the official report, published in May 2010, said the crash was due to a combination of circumstances, including a faulty altitude meter and inadequate response by the pilot. In 2013, the then transport minister Wilma Mansfeld told the Tweede Kamer that the altimeter had been repaired on 16 occasions in the year before the crash. This is a, that's not a good look for Boeing, eh? 
No, well, not not only for Boeing, but also for the safety yeah, board. Yeah, it's also about because the safety board. Ba- basically, the New York Times says Boeing called the safety board. They said, hey, c- could you scrap the blame on our part? And the safety board apparently said, okay, let's do that. And of course, the pilots died in the crash, so they weren't really around to like defend themselves. No, but yeah, they have forced the black box. and Yeah, of course, of course. I but it, I think it's much easier to... To, to, to blame the, dead pilots. Blame them dead pilots, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that's true, yeah. yeah. And so what has the safety board said about this uh, incident? Um, the, the former uh, safety board chairman is Pieter van Vollenhoven, and he has denied that the report was unduly influenced. The OVV often comes under pressure, but I swear that this has no influence on our reports. We place a great deal of importance on our independence, uh, van Vollenhoven told Radio 1 News. Both Boeing and Turkish Airlines were aware of the problems of the old meters before the crash. You could switch them off by hand, he said. That had happened on two earlier flights. Boeing did not therefore see this as a safety problem. That seems a bit... I have questions about yeah, that. Yeah. You, you, have, you have an instrument that shows you your altitude and... For, for while some you're reason, flying pil- a plane, while just you're to flying be clear. A, a plane and, and, and the pilots need to assess for themselves if it's working correctly or not. Yeah. And if not, they have to sh- turn it off. Right, by hand. By hand. Yes. That, um, the safety board has emphasized in a statement that their final conclusion was that Boeing was mostly responsible for the crash. And in an unprecedented move, they published the preliminary report on Wednesday to put an end to all the rumors. The Tweede Kamer has announced that they will be holding a hearing to ask questions to Dijsselbloem. He's the current uh, chairman of the uh, safety board. Van Vollenhoven, the former chair, yeah. and also Boeing yeah. um, is going to be asked to uh, to come. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the safety board also conducted a uh, investigation uh, about the crash of MH17. This is exactly what I was just going to say. Yeah. So it's oh, sorry. Thanks for stepping on me there. Thanks, Paul. Um, yeah. And give the, you the floor. And the MH17 trial is starting in in six yeah. weeks or so. And this is only giving Russia uh, exactly. its fuel for yeah. claiming that this investigation wasn't independent because yeah. everybody can just knock on, the, on their doors and change the the outcome of the investigation. Right. So yeah. You know, and it's also I think interesting given all of the other problems that Boeing has had with their aircraft recently. Yeah. That like I you know the the way at least I think the seventh. 37 max which this plane was not one of the other planes the same kind of the other planes that that had crashed was you know people said oh well there were all these problems like sort of rushing these things out the door and those planes are an issue but the other planes are fine but maybe they're not all fine no so. Wasn't uh, with the 737 MAX uh, also not a problem with the altitude meter? That It was a software issue, I mm. think, right? That but they... it was also related to the altitude yeah. meter, I think. Yeah. yeah, I believe it was something like that. Yeah. But we are not sure. We are very uninformed. We're, topic, I mean, we're actually. pretty uninformed about anything. Yeah. But on this topic in particular, I would, I would say we're pretty uninformed. I think we should just move on. Should we move on? To working hours, because we are spending way too much working hours <laughs> on this podcast. Campaign group Veo in Axi, together with the FNV and the AOBay trade unions, handed in the results of a survey of working hours of academics to the Social Affairs Ministry inspectors this week. That found that professors and researchers are working an average of 12 to 15 hours a week without getting paid. Some really? Yeah. Oh. Well, this is means... I'm very surprised by this. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it means sort of, you know, your contract is for 32 hours a week, and on top of that, you're working 12 more hours, basically. Um, some 720 university workers took part in a research project at the end of last year to determine their overtime. Uh, the unions are making a claim of structural unpaid overtime on our behalf, campaigner and Utrecht University professor Ingrid Robbins told the Financiële Dagblad. We are demanding that the inspectorate begin an investigation. Hmm, very interesting. I wonder how, if you would conduct the same sort of survey among other types of uh, work i wonder how that would what the results would be i think academia is 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 worse in a lot of ways i think it's i think it's for a couple of reasons one because i think that you are beholden to a lot of different masters when you are working in academia meaning that you probably have a teaching load and you're supposed to be doing some research and maybe you're applying for like grant money and all this other kinds of stuff i mean the people who i know who are professors work a considerable amount of time. You know, there's a lot of like travel for conferences. It's hard, I think, to, you know, it's not just one thing that you have to show up and do for the most part when you're a university professor. The other thing too is, is I think that this is one of these professions where people are like, well, you love what you do. So like, mm, you know, you do yeah, it a lot. Yeah. You're willing to spend more time than you actually should be. Yeah. But that, that, 
as a result, you are basically underpaid. Yeah, you're yeah. underpaid. Or, and well, I mean, maybe, maybe not just underpaid, but I also think that like people's, I mean, we know this from studies of people that the longer working hours don't necessarily increase productivity. And so, you know, you're basically just kind of burning your wheels. I mean, yeah. it, I think what the union is asking for, I read there like the they owe an Axis report thing. And basically what they're asking for is structural money to be able to do things like hire more teaching assistants or hire more researchers or like this kinds of the stuff. The same thing that the uh, primary school teachers are asking for. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think teaching, teaching is a very underrated sort of profession. Yeah. Like we do yeah. not pay the people who educate young people in this country or in any country really like a sufficient amount of money, it seems. One of the two main suspects in the farmhouse family mystery appeared in court in Assa on Tuesday for the first procedural hearing in the case. Josef Bey, the Austrian odd jobs man who rented the farmhouse on behalf of the family and is suspected of kidnapping and money laundering, was in court to hear the charges against him and to hear details of the investigation. He was remanded in custody until the main case takes place later this year. I have robbed no one of their freedom, Bey said in court. This is a witch hunt. If someone believes in God, surely that is their own decision. What do all these things, those statements have to do with each other? Uh, I, I think what he means is that these people uh, stayed in his the house that he rented um, voluntarily. That because they was believed their decision in God. Because they believed in whatever they were believing in. Okay. Uh, so I think that's what he means. I'm not sure what the witch hunt. I was going to say, what is the witch hunt? Maybe about? he maybe he uh, he did have he, maybe the only thing that he was in contact with was Donald Trump, uh-huh. and that he sort of uh, is taking over Donald Trump's vocabulary. B said nothing of the case uh, as it had been reported so far is true. There was no seller and no one was kept against their will. Gerrit Jan van Day, that's the father of the six youngsters, is not well enough to talk and remains in prison hospital in Scheveningen. That's the other guy that they. That's the father who. There were six young people staying in this cellar, and that was the father of, mm-hmm. of the six people. And then this Austrian dude that was sort of the... Who claims that there wasn't a cellar, even though I've actually seen photos of the cellar in question? Uh, I haven't seen a photo, so I don't know. But the fact is that these children stayed there and were not allowed to leave. The family was discovered in early October when one youngster went to the local bar uh, appealing for help. Uh, At the time, the family were portrayed as some sort of doomsday cult with no connection to the outside world. But it emerged later both the father and the eldest son were active on social media. It also transpired that Van Day had three other children who had broken contact with him and never lived in Ruinerwald in Drenthe. That's where the uh, farmhouse uh, was located. The father is suspected of sexually abusing two of them. The court was told on Tuesday that the abuse took place when they were between the ages of 12 and 15 and that Van Day saw female spirits in them, including their mother. Um, She had died in 2004. The births of the six children who lived on them on the farm had never been included in the official registers and they had lived all their lives away from normal society, the public prosecutor said. Although none of the children uh, have made a formal complaint against their father or the Austrian uh, guy, the public prosecutor said that um, they had been the victims of criminal acts. Gerrit van Dey was the evil genius, but Joseph Bey was his partner in crime. Uh, The public prosecutor is quoted as saying by the Telegraaf. Yeah, there was a there were some gruesome details that were revealed about this case. Yeah, right? in, yeah, indeed. Uh, the, all the children were required to pray sometimes for weeks at a time. Uh, during those periods, they were only given water and no food. Um, they were also punished physically. Sometimes uh, they were hit with sticks uh, or they were forced to sit in an ice-cold bath until they lost consciousness. Many of the details are contained in Van Day's diaries, which were seized during the police investigation. So they didn't get this from statements from the children. No, but they, they got it from the father. read it from, from, from his, the father's diary. At the end of last year, uh, the four oldest children uh, put out a joint statement via a documentary filmmaker, Jessica Villerius. They said that they supported the complaints made against their father who uh, also faces charges of kidnapping and money money laundering but the five youngest children say um, they back their father and describe the division between them and their oldest uh, siblings in the statement as very painful the children will all uh, be required to testify during the main hearings but this will take place in closed court because it involves children and children yeah oh that's terrible so gordon is uh Oh, on watch is... duties at a certain farmhouse in Drenta, and now I've been tasked with handling the sports section this week. So I did my because own t- I insisted that I, you, you in- would be doing this. You insisted that I do, and so this is what happens. 
Tuan Van Gent, the reigning world BMX champion, suffered a serious hand injury during a training session just before the start of the season and is expected to be out for 8 to 12 weeks. Motorcycle racer Edwin Straver has been transferred to a Dutch hospital after suffering a broken vertebrae during a fall in the Dakar rally in Saudi Arabia. He had no heartbeat for nearly 10 minutes following the crash at his third Dakar rally and his prognosis is limited. Brit Irland is participating in the OKT knockout tournament in Portugal this week in her effort to qualify for the 2020 Olympic Games as part of the Dutch table tennis team. Irland participated in the 2016 games, but was knocked out after one game. Also, some stuff happened with soccer. <laughs> I was I was uh, expecting that, you know, the first stories uh, that you mentioned, they all didn't end very well. No. So I was I was trying to end on a high note. Yeah, she seems. I nice. was I was kind of afraid that whenever you do the sports <laughs> sections here, that everything goes everyone's bad gonna and die. Everybody just get injured. And well, the, has the to first give up. guy will be okay. The guy in the middle is not. That does not look great. But uh, the you know the knockout uh, uh competition for uh for Brit Irland is uh, is on Saturday, so we can all cheer her along in the in the table tennis thing. She seemed uh, very lovely in an interview that she gave to the NOS. So oh. I hope that she does well and makes it to uh, the twenty twenty games. Well, next week. We will update you on what and how she did. Yeah, we'll yeah. force Gordon to do it. Yeah, sure. Exciting. Last year, 20 million foreign tourists came to the Netherlands and stayed at least one night, according to new figures from National Tourist Board and BTC. That's the worst news that we've heard in this podcast, I think. Really? That's really bad. You, you don't it's like a, tourists? That's a lot of tourists. You are you are also a tourist. I'm not a tourist. I well, live here. You, you, I pay you, fucking taxes. I live here. <laughs> that's true. It's an extended uh, trip you are doing uh, to the Netherlands. No, you, you wish it was an extended trip. Unfortunately, mm. your country is stuck with me permanently. <laughs> Some 80% of the visitors came from Europe, particularly from Germany, Belgium, and sadly, the UK. Uh, the role of the MBTC is changing. The organization said, we are working towards a more sustainable approach to destination the Netherlands, as they called our country. Yes. They dropped the Holland, of course, yeah. so they're going to have to uh, refer to the country as the Netherlands from now on. Yeah. Alongside marketing towards the sort of guest we want to see, so they will not be advertising in the UK, I think. Nope. Uh, we are strengthening our role in terms of insight, strategy, and the positioning of the Netherlands. Last year, a government think tank said the government must invest in ensuring the Netherlands remains a pleasant place to live as tourism continues to grow. Is it a pleasant place to live? The Netherlands? Yeah. Well, it is. It's fine. I think. I mean, as long as you're not decent. Brabant. And not going to saunas. That's true. Hmm. Yeah, don't go to the sauna. The Council of the Environment and Infrastructure said ministers must immediately pump money into dealing with the negative impact of tourism because the country is now at a crossroads. While tourism uh, generates twice as much money as agriculture for the treasury, just a handful of civil servants are busy with policy, the council pointed out. In particular, Amsterdam is struggling to deal with the tourist influx, although around half of the city's visitors are day trippers from elsewhere in the country. That's also unfortunate. Yeah, uh, I I have a question. I mm, I have an answer. <laughs> Whether or not it's a good answer, I don't know. I, I don't often go to Amsterdam, but <laughs> but when I am there um, and I walk out of the Amsterdam Central train station and you walk towards the Dam Square, you are on the street full of people, full of roll coffers, you know, yeah. suitcases and wheels. Um, it's very crowded. It's very busy. And then I think. Oh, maybe the people who live in Amsterdam have a point when they say that uh, they are suffering from uh, tourism in the Nether- in, yeah. in their city. But if you go one street that runs parallel to Damrak, that's the Spuistraat, and you walk there, and there is not a single tourist. There, there, it's a very quiet street. There is one occasional tram. There's yeah, nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. Doesn't that on... just mean that... Well, the city is livable as long as you avoid the, the touristy places. Well, so this is—I I think there's a, a few things at work here. One, I think that there are a lot of places in Amsterdam that are also unlivable, not just the Domrock. We have friends who live in the red light district, and it's like awful to go there. And it's—I mean, it's not awful because of what the red light district advertises itself as. It's awful because, no, because there's a lot of drunk a lot British of stag parties yeah. there. Um, Niels's uncle lives next door to the Anna Frank house. That is also a nightmare. Um, yeah. So I think for a lot of people that this is that the, that those things are problems. I think the concern for the future is is that you know it didn't used to be this way in Amsterdam. Like lots of places didn't quite used to be this sort of touristy, and that as the number of tourists have grown, the number of places that have become basically unlivable have also grown. And I think the concern is is that like as if the numbers keep growing, like these people are just going to keep expanding further and further out and making the city more and more. 
unlivable. Um, I know one of the other things that our colleagues in who live in Amsterdam complain about is, of course, with the rise of Airbnb, you have lots of tourists in residential neighborhoods, um, and they're not in places that are like regulated for this kinds of stuff. So you suddenly, also have a lot of people who buy a house and then basically uh, rent it out yeah. on Airbnb twenty four seven. Yeah. Um, so then you have a lot of you know people that are on vacation who are coming who are you know staying up late and drinking late and also going through the you know the town with their roll coffers and all this kinds of stuff which creates a lot of like noise and disturbance i think that the, those things are also like a problem um, do, you, do you agree with the tourist board's um strategy to sort of spread the number of tourists around I'm, the country i'm not convinced Would you like that you can more do people this. in 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 delft i mean i'm not no, but although Delft has its kind of its own tourism problems, although it's not as bad as Amsterdam is certainly. I'm I have never seen any sort of like reasonable research into how you how you do this exactly because when people travel here, like they're not you know if even if you're not coming for like the sex work and the marijuana, which a lot of people are. So I understand their interest in trying to, like, not advertise towards, like, those sorts of people, oh. i.e. British stag parties. But um, how are you going to let people forget that these things are here exist. next to them? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess maybe you hope that other places in the world legalize marijuana, so it's, like, less interesting. But <laughs> Everyone even can if go you, to Colorado. <laughs> even if you want to advertise to, you know, people who want to come to see, like, art and culture, like... Amsterdam has a lot of art and culture, too. I think it's really hard to say, yeah. like, you yeah. know, don't go see the Rijksmuseum and the Van Gogh Museum and the Anna Frank Museum. Like, you have to go to the Kunsthal in Rotterdam, which is a really lovely museum. Um, but it's, it's not a not, museum. It's, it's an exhibition It's an hall. exhibition hall. Yeah, yeah. And or, art gets stolen from it. That's true. Um, although art has been stolen from other places before, so. Van Gogh Museum as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that it's, it's quite challenging to say yeah. that, like... How do you spread the number of people? Because if you book, if you are from, I don't know, from the UK or France or from Germany, probably the best known, uh, location in the Netherlands is Amsterdam. Yeah, of course. A lot of people even don't know, from America, for example, don't know that the Netherlands is a country. They just know Amsterdam, Amsterdam as, as a city. city. Yeah. So, yeah, how are you going to change that? Yeah. I wonder... If that's actually possible, yeah. yeah. I mean, I you know, we we live in Delft, as I think most podcast listeners know. And we, my partner and I frequently have guests. Um, and I think that, like, Delft is slightly too small for people who want to do stuff to come for a weekend, right? It's a very yeah. lovely city. Yeah. Um, but they come here and... The, it's too small for more than two days. It's too yeah. small for more than two days. So, you, you know, you run out of things to do very quickly. I mean, you know, maybe you just want a weekend away and that just means, like, lounging about and staying in a nice hotel and yeah. going out for dinner. I mean, that's a different story, but you can do that literally anywhere. But, you know, if you want to see some museums or see some theater stuff or see famous buildings, like... You know, inevitably people go also to Amsterdam for a day when they stay here or to The Hague or to Rotterdam. Um, so, you know, I guess your solution is to try to convince people to go to The Hague, but they're, you're going to quickly run into the same problem. So yeah, I don't know. I'm very curious to see exactly what it is that they can do. I mean, I guess you make Amsterdam more and more expensive for tourists. So you raise tourist taxes in an effort to sort of... Um, deter people from coming and then yeah, you hope but, that they go somewhere else instead. But the, the, the tourist taxes are um, have to do with hotels, right. of course. And if the majority of these people stay in Airbnb places, mm. then I think that yeah. the, what they should do is probably tackle the Airbnb problem there. Yeah. I think that's the only... Yeah. way to go i mean i do think you could probably make some end way into this problem by moving tourist stuff away from places that are already tourist sort of infested so like for example when you get off the train station in amsterdam there's all these like boat companies right that are like right there and if you refuse to allow them permits there and instead move them like somewhere else in the city, then at least do a cut back on some of this. Right. Or like, you know, they put the cruise terminal in right just up the street from there. Um, you know, and maybe, I mean, I know that they, they moved that from somewhere else, but maybe that was like not a great choice. There's also been talk about moving the red light district, which I think a lot of sex workers in the red light districts have advocated for because they say basically like they can't, do their job because yeah, their whole because it's too, it's too crowded, crowded with tourists yeah. who aren't actually buying sex but are yeah. just there to sort of take pictures yeah um so i think if you kind of move those things away i don't know you give fewer permits to like late night bars in certain areas because there's like too much stuff i mean i guess there's some things you can do but i think it's really i think this is you know that this is a, 
a problem that does not have like a lot of really great clear cut like solutions. Like you make the tourism board put up a bunch of ads being like Amsterdam's kind of boring. You should go to Venice <laughs> instead. Like that's basically like what I think you're going to have to do. Yeah. Amsterdam is boring. Go to Den Helder. Go to Den Helder. Yeah. yeah. It was pandemonium in the Auerhans Deerland Park this week. Zookeepers captured Xingya and Wu Wen mating for the first time in their two years at the zoo. It was stupendous, one of the zookeepers said, probably. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> you said this. <laughs> I said probably. You don't know that they didn't say it. <laughs> it is not black and white if this will produce a baby panda, however. That is dependent on whether or not Wu Wen is fertile. Female pandas are only fertile for three to seven days per year. Yeah. The mating... They don't uh, want to reproduce. They really don't. No. The mating wasn't entirely an independent act. Zookeepers have also been trying to increase the possibility by spreading each panda's urine in each other's sleeping areas and playing panda porn. We <laughs> hope this wasn't too embarrassing for them. Barely good luck to the two. No, uh, no. We it was pretty on. good. Was, no, it there wasn't. was a good number no, of puns no, in there. No, no, none of these puns were good. All of the puns. These were, were good. all very terrible. They were very terrible. Also, because they are panda related, and pandas are the most stupid animals this in the is, world. This is also true. <sighs> Eating bamboo. It was a. It was a panda news <laughs> article. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that one was quite good. Thank but you. we do have to move on. Yeah. We will be discussing the latest news in the Toeslagen affair after this word from our sponsors. If you want to hear more panda puns and keep up to date with the latest OPEF, why not support us on Patreon? Producing a weekly roundup of the latest Dutch news, sport, and political developments costs a lot of time and money, and we will show you our gratitude by giving you a shout-out on the next show. You can also ask a question to us about just about anything. We'll do our best to give you an honest answer. I don't know why Gordon says this. This is never true. No, we not we no. never answer the, the questions honorably. No. no. So, Molly, last week we um, asked some people about uh, why they're listening to the podcast. Yeah, because uh, we're very confused. Because we were listens. very confused by them, especially because we took a look, look at the, 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 the cities that people are listening uh, uh, from to, to us. Uh, and there were some very weird cities, yeah. weird places over there, some random places in the US, but also in uh, India and other places. And we got a response. Well, we, we got a couple of responses. Uh, there was a number of them who were mostly just from people who said, you know, that they had some connection to the Netherlands, basically. Either they had lived here or their partner was from here or they were hoping to immigrate here. Um, but we did get one email um, from someone who says that they have no connection to the Netherlands. Although oh. uh, this person's wife is from Indonesia. Um, and so they, they were like sort of looking into... Indonesian history and culture and of course the Dutch played like a large role in that um, because you, you colonized it um, and so uh, he finds us charming and funny uh, which <laughs> okay. clearly is a lie yeah. um, but asked this question which we thought was kind of interesting which is to say um, to what degree do you see the effects of the Dutch colonization um, on the Netherlands today um, so I thought we would take a stab at answering yeah. that. So you, you mentioned this question to me and the first thing I, um, uh, I had to think about was that we have in the Netherlands a lot of Indonesian people and yeah. a lot of Indonesian should, restaurants yeah. and some food and, uh, some, some supermarkets. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is, I think the, the, and also a lot of people from Suriname, for, yeah. of course, which is also a colony of the Netherlands. So I think to that degree, you see a lot of people who, when these countries uh, became independent, they they moved to the, a lot of people from there moved to the Netherlands, and uh, yeah, I think that's the most obvious thing that you uh, see in the Netherlands yeah. as a sort of uh, reminder of our colonial history. Sure, I sure. Think. I mean, I was aware that Indonesia existed as a place before I moved here, but I had never eaten Indonesian food. Um, and now I frequently in eat Indonesian food. Yeah. Um, also, there's a lot of, like, words that get used in Dutch, which are actually, like, Indonesian. So, like, oh, really? Bami and Nasi. Oh, yeah, okay, but and it's toko. all food-related. Yeah, yeah, toko yeah. is, of course, a shop, I think. Yeah. Um, so those those things get used, um, you know, sort of, they've been kind of incorporated into Dutch. I was not aware that Suriname was a place until I moved here, <laughs> um, which I think is true for a lot of people. Um, and now also regularly eat and have strong opinions about where the best place is to get Surinamese <laughs> food. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think what you said, like sort of just seeing the prevalence of these cultures represented in such a way that you would not expect were it not for, um, kind of these relationships, 
I think is like kind of the biggest. It's the thing. most obvious thing yeah, I think for as sure. Well. Yeah, and you also have a lot of um, street names in the Netherlands that are named after people who played uh, important roles. Uh, yeah. Sometimes not as uh, pleasant roles in uh, in Dutch colonial history. Yeah, that's also true. Um, there is uh, quite often there is a debate, uh, a public debate uh, in newspapers or in the media or whatever about uh, some place that is still named after yeah. one of these uh, colonial um, sailors. Yeah. Um, I also so, think yeah. that. You you see a lot more travel of Dutch people to places that they had a relationship with. So, I mean, I think Dutch people disproportionately go to places like Bali and Indonesia than other places. I think that that's just, you know, the sort of historical connection. Mm. Also, like, traveling in, like, you know, the Caribbean. Like, when you talk to people, I mean, there's lots of islands in the in the, in the the Caribbean, and there's lots of places that U.S. people go, which yeah. also were a lot of, like, U.S. sort of call it, I mean... U.S. didn't necessarily colonize them in the kind of the same way, but like it, you yeah. had a colonial empire. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's a slightly different thing. I'm not defending it. I'm not saying it was better. I'm just saying it was different. Um, but a lot of these places are sort of like now, you know, U.S. protectorates or yeah. you know something along these lines. But, but it's true. If 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 a Dutch person would go to the Caribbean, they on go to vacation, Aruba. They would go to Aruba Bonaire. or Bonaire or Curaçao. Curaçao, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which were all you know sort of Dutch colonies. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I suspect that has a lot to do with familiarity, right? So like you know you. You go there because maybe your parents went there and your parents went there because, like, one grandparent went there at some point in time or whatever. I mean, also that, like, you know, that there's Dutch and it's is of more course spoken. A familiar name, it's of a course. familiar name. Yeah, yeah, all these kinds of things. So I think that that has, you know, a lot to do with it. You know, I suspect people from those places move here and then have contact with travel agencies and can set things up and facilitate things in a way that maybe doesn't happen in places that don't have those kind of connections. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I do think that you see the uh, the impact here. Yeah, that's true. Um I suspect it's more interesting to think about what the impact was on, on those places, but that's that's beyond the that's beyond this commercial break. Yeah, that's true. We don't have enough time for that. No, we don't have enough time for that. Um, if you want to become a Patreon of the podcast, you can uh, make sure we don't run out of coffee, strope waffles, particularly the lavender kind, uh, <laughs> no. or dog food, which Truby appreciates greatly. That's true. Uh, you can go to Patreon.com/DutchNewsNL and uh, kick us some money. De Tweede Kamer held a debate this week with Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra and Prime Minister Mark Rutte about the future of the tax office. The Belastingdienst is currently not only gathering taxes, but it also in charge of uh, customs and also to pay out benefits. Especially with the latter, we've seen quite some problems in the past uh, Just like months. one or two minor just, issues. Uh, just uh, some minor issues. Um, and it is the so-called toeslagen affair. What does toeslagen affair mean, Paul? Well, um, to remind you, I think we talked about it extensively on the previous uh, episodes. We did. A few months ago, it uh, was revealed that the tax office had forced people to pay back what they called were wrongfully claimed child benefits. The tax office accused these people of fraud and branded them as cheats. Often it was just oversight or a miscalculation or an error in processing the paperwork, which had led to uh, the pay- these payments to, to be cancelled. Con- conveniently, coincidentally, a number of these people were had an immigrant background yeah. or dual nationals. Yeah, yeah. That, there's also some... Um, uh, some accusations of uh, racial bias uh, yeah. in there as well. Um, the tax office uh, did not explain to these people uh, their decision to cancel the payments or gave them a chance to correct these errors. Um, a large number of people, and that, that's where the real problem is, were left in financial ruin when they were forced to pay back all the money they had received in sometimes a couple of years. So that could uh, easily add up to, to thousands and thousands yeah, of euros. That's a lot of money. Uh, there was even some uh, some examples of, of people who had to pay back 75,000 euros. Yeah. Well, if you are just a, a, a normal working family, then you don't have that, of course. I don't have saving that sitting account. around, no. it turns out. And the thing is, the Belastingdienst, uh, they did nothing wrong, these people. Yeah. So they just said, uh, we just called you, we just determined that you are fraudulent. fraudulent. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to tell you what is wrong with you, but you're gonna have to pay these seventy-five thousand euros back. And the thing is, the and child... there was no uh, recourse; they couldn't contest this. No, no, they didn't give an opportunity no. to do that. So, um, and yeah, the thing is that the, these people they they ended up in huge problems because you receive child benefits to bring your children to do after-school daycare or preschool daycare. Um, you do that because you have a job. Yeah. But when you do not do not receive these benefits anymore, you cannot work 
more than you want. And right. so how, because your kid now has to stay at home because you can't send it to daycare. So how are you going to get the money that you have to pay? So, it did not seem like a great plan no, to me. No, no, so indeed. why didn't the tax office act like such dicks? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's the number one question, of yeah. course. Uh, well, it has to do, probably has to do with another Toeslager scandal that we had in the past. Um, because a couple of years ago it was revealed that a large number of people from abroad, and these were mostly Romanians or Bulgarians, they would apply for certain benefits. And how the system works in the Netherlands, you apply for a benefit and you will immediately get paid uh, what you have requested. Right. And then uh, the Belastingdienst will take a couple of months to sort of check if you are really eligible, eligible yeah. and you are really are entitled to these benefits. And if so, then they keep paying you that. But if you are not, then they will stop the payments and right. you're going to have to pay it back. But what these Romanian people did and these Bulgarian people, they applied for the benefits. They would receive the money on their bank account and they would immediately go back to where they came from, from Bulgaria. But uh, when the tax office found out sometimes uh, a year later that they uh, had to pay the money back, they couldn't because these people did had not already stay yeah. in the Netherlands. They already left. Um, so that caused a huge scandal because Understandably uh, it, so. did this cost uh, the taxpayers, of course, millions and millions of euros. But as a result, the tax office basically went full crusade. They against, went full Karen. On the yeah, <laughs> they went full Karen on, on, on suspected frauds. Mm. So... Um, and as a result, everyone who made the tiniest mistake yeah. in their application form, they were immediately cut short of their benefits. Yeah. And uh, as you say, uh, if you are uh, an, an immigrant or you are not Dutch, then of course you're going to make these errors uh, uh, much more easily because these forms, they are very complicated to fill out. Even for a Dutch-speaking person, it's very complicated. We had this issue when we were applying for the... Because you get a, a tax benefit, uh, like a monthly... The hypotheque... What is it called? Hypotheque rente off uh, Yeah. The H word. The H word, yeah. Um, and uh, there was this form that we had to fill out. And in one place, it asked for your income like as a yearly total. And in one place, it asked for your income as like a weekly or monthly amount. I don't remember. Um, or maybe it was multiple forms. I don't know. But of course, like I knew what I had gotten paid the year before, because of course we'd filled it out on a bajillion other forms. And then of course I just roughly sort of was like, well, I know this is like sort of roughly the amount of money that comes into my bank account every month or every two weeks. I don't remember what the thing was, but because one of these numbers was like from the tax form and one of them was just sort of like the ballpark estimate. They of mm. course did not match, right? If you took yeah. that number and you multiplied it by 52, it didn't exactly equal the other number. Yeah. And then we get this like letter from the tax office being like, well, you've done this thing incorrectly and like, or, you know, you can't commit fraud and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me basically. Yeah. But they're yeah. quite you like, just, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, but, it's but a very like common. At least they gave you an opportunity yeah. to correct Yeah, exactly. No. And that's what, what went wrong Right, here. exactly. But it just goes to show how sort of easy it can be to make i mean i don't even know if i would qualify this as a mistake necessarily it just goes to show like how easy it can be yeah. for someone who is you know well educated who is filling out these forms who speaks dutch has a native english speaking or native dutch speaking partner like how easy it can be to like make mistakes or what the tax office constitutes and, a mistake. and that's sort of the criticism about this bureaucratic this enormous institute that yeah. there is they lost all sense of humanity yeah. and um, yeah, in their anti-fraud campaign, it, it really went out of control yeah. because of this lack of humanity. So no. what has happened since the scandal has sort of emerged, right? We had like a lot of scandal-related <clears throat> stuff, and now yeah. that seems to have died down. So what's going on now? Uh, well, Junior Finance Minister Menno Schnell, uh, after uh, the first news of the scandal broke, he promised to come up with a solution very fast for all the, fam for all the families and all the households that were... Uh, hit by this and that and, and the, the people who saw their benefits uh, unjustly being cut um, and there was also a special commission that advised the government to actively look for people who were victimized by the tax office uh, and uh, they also urged the tax office to start paying compensation to these families uh, the junior minister also promised to be fully transparent from from now on but uh, How'd he, that work out? Yeah, he had to resign when later that week um, some people uh, received their personal files and their personal dossiers of the Belasting Dienst, uh, you know, in an effort to be completely and uh, fully transparent, but only to find out that all their files were 
almost 100% and fully redacted yes. and blacked out. Not exactly transparent. So that was not very transparent. It was very embarrassing for uh, this uh, this finance minister who yeah made this pledge to be fully transparent yeah. and to be fully cooperative. So he basically had to resign over this because his position was no longer... Um, yeah. He was no longer the credible guy yeah. to, 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 to solve this. So who then is left in charge of the blasting deeds? Nobody. Okay, great. The coalition is currently looking for two new junior ministers instead of one. Um, that's sort of indicating how serious the problems are because one of these uh, junior ministers will be fully in charge of finding a solution to the Toeslagen affair. Um, this person will also have to find an alternative for the current Toeslagen system, which we just mentioned, so you can apply and you will immediately get yeah. the money. Um, it is clear, however, that these junior ministers will be coming from D66 because Menno Snell is also from D66. Um, so that's the only thing we know. These people will be from Dacia's sister, but it's not still not clear who, who these people will be. And the ta- what's going to happen to the tax office? Um, well, the cabinet has decided that the tax office uh, should be broken up. Okay. Uh, because currently the tax office is not only gathering money from people who need to pay taxes, uh, they are also in charge of customs and also paying out these benefits that we just uh, talked about and also to see if people are eligible for these benefits. And the cabinet has decided that these three departments should be separated from each other. Okay. Um, That's probably easier said than done because, you know, it's... The tax office has a history of reorganizations that have not gone great? Yeah, no, It's it. W- this will be, if this will go through, the second big reorganization of the uh, tax office. Um, but, you know, that's... It also had countless other smaller reorganizations yeah. within the department itself. So it is a huge organization. Uh, I believe it's the it's the third largest governmental agency after the army and the police. That makes sense. Um, yeah. yeah, but but finance minister Hoekstra, he, he basically said that in order to solve this problem, we need to separate the Toeslagen department from the tax office. Uh, department because it seems weird that on the one hand the tax office is gathering money and on the other hand is distributing money yeah. it sort of seems that that's not what the tax office should yeah. do Which, what I think is kind of interesting about this though is I feel like um, the gathering money part the Belasting Deeds does pretty well and of course when you say that people are like haha yeah because the Dutch are like very good for squeezing you down to your every last tax penny but what I really mean is is that I don't know anyone personally who's ever gotten a letter about their income tax information that's ever been incorrect, right? That like most people, if you just have like a normal job, you just get your like thing at the end of the year and you say that it's fine. Um, I think most people I know who are, you know, even those of us who are, you know, doing like freelance work and like this kinds of stuff. I mean, you have a pretty easygoing, you know, relationship with the tax office that everything is like yeah, pretty straightforward and works pretty well. It, it, it's uh, it's sort of automated yeah. actually, right? Because at the end of the year, you uh, at the beginning of the year, you have to uh, fill in your information about yeah. your, your income taxes. And but but all this information is already gathered by yeah. the blasting deans itself. They say we have this information from yeah. of you. Uh, they sort of collected from 90 uh, uh, 90 agencies and banks and stuff like yeah. that, I believe. Uh, and they basically ask you check if this is correct. Right. And if not, then correct it. Yeah. And uh, then uh, everything is fine. So yeah, you basically, you never have to fill in a file. Yeah, it's, um, it's all pretty straightforward, I yeah. have to say. Yeah, that's um, very, uh, very str- pretty straightforward indeed. But uh, the blasting, it is a huge organization because they're not only... Uh, it's not only income taxes that they have to right, deal with. Right, they're doing a lot of other stuff. There, there was an, an incident about the succession taxes, for example. Yeah. Um, for two years, it wasn't collected because there was um, an internal software error. So for two years, <laughs> it wasn't collected at all. Oops. Yeah. So what does the Tweedacomer think about the uh, about the cabinet's plan, Rutte's plan? Well, many MPs, they feel that Wopke Hoekstra and Rutte are going way too fast with their plan to split off the tax <laughs> office because, of uh, yeah, uh, we, we just said we, it already had a major uh, yeah. reorganization in the past and now they're going to propose another major reorganization in the past. Um, so, yeah, they fear that shaking this very complex organization up will basically make it worse. Lead, make, yeah, make uh, cause even more chaos. Um, uh, I, I also heard in the NRC podcast about the, the taxes uh, that was um, the NSA podcast of last week, I believe, that uh, the tax office is currently using 900 software 
tools Jesus. in order to calculate everything and yeah. they are intertwined and connected and yeah so they need a new system. just just imagine untangling this yeah. if you want to separate these uh, these departments so good luck to them um and rutte also pointed out that uh, if you have 5 million households who receive some sort of benefits and 7 million people who have some sort of healthcare benefits as well, then it basically indicates that the system has gone too yeah. big and too large and too complicated. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, though, it's it seems it's yeah, it's mildly misleading, right? Because technically, like, I live in a house that receives a tax benefit, right? Because yeah. you get the hypotheque renta off track thing. Um, and that is considered a, uh, a, a, yeah, that's a benefit. Yeah. Yeah, It's a tuslach, right? So, I mean, I guess, you know, it, it, I, I felt when Rutte was discussing this, they were sort of making it seem like there's a lot of people who are basically on welfare when that's like not really the case. Oh no, I don't think that's what he meant. I think. No, but I think, you know, it's the Veve day and they like to sort of, Mm. you know, sort of make these things. I mean, also like things that are counted in this, right? Or like you said, the healthcare benefits, that was like a separate number that he broke out, but also the, um what do you call it? The Hortuslach, right, thing where you can get some money back for rent, right? Which is, I, you know, I think is a, is a, is a good plan considering, you know, there's not enough social horror in the country. So you want some more opportunities for people to be able to afford private rent. But I, I do, I see the point in that the system is very complicated and it would be nice to simplify it. Yeah. Am I convinced that a bunch of politicians are going to be able to simplify a system that, as you just described, for many, many reasons, is very, very complicated? Mm, we'll no, see. No. Yeah. Politicians never tend to be able to make things less complicated, I think. Yeah, I think that there's a lot yeah, of truth yeah, to that. There are way too many desires and yeah. wishes to... Uh, yeah, but how can you make it a, a simple system? I, I think know. the only way you can make it a simple system is to have people pay a fixed percentage of, of taxes over their income. That's the only way you can make it simple. Yeah, although, you know, that's not even as though there it's are progressive. A lot of, it's yeah. not as progressive. Yeah, but, I mean, even if you... I mean, the tax... The amount of money that you pay in terms of what you pay on your income, that isn't that complicated, I think. I think the question is, is, you know, it's very complicated with all these, like, different benefits thing. Yeah. And if you want to simplify and exemptions it... and stuff like that. Yeah. Then you go in the direction of universal basic income, which I mm. don't think is going to make the right-leaning coalition party in this country super, super yeah. happy. Don't think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So, or we can just accept that taxes are complicated and that it and move on with life. Yeah, and it will inevitably result in yeah. a very bureaucratic system because where in where in the world do you have a, no, a nowhere you, nowhere, nowhere in the world it's, do you everywhere have it's it's complicated. I mean, I think the thing that seems more frustrating to me is like they were talking about this nine hundred software packages that the Belasting Deans uses. It seems to me that it would be possible to have a single software package which you could put your information into and then it could spit out for you what kind of credits and stuff you are eligible for that both the tax office could then also use right so like you don't you don't really need to understand the system you just need to have a tool that like allows you to do this much in the same way that like you know i don't necessarily understand how to do like long complicated averages and stuff but if i can just do it in excel really fast then it's fine so like i don't know maybe there's a market out there for that Mm, yeah so if you are a software designer, yeah. please uh, call the Blasting Call Dienst. the Blasting Dienst. Yes. First call me so that I can get a cut of this. <laughs> there was a big uh, big dust up at the debate though, yeah. right? There was a bit of a yeah. fight. There was a bit of a fight between SPMP uh, Renske Leite and the Prime Minister. Uh, you have to remember Leite is one of the uh, MPs who sort of um, were responsible for putting the Belastingdienst affair on the political agenda right. together with Peter Omtzigt of the CDA. Yeah. Um, and um, there was news about the, the uh, one of the top high-ranking officials of the Belastingdienst was sacked because of this affair, yeah. because of the scandal. Um, but uh, it was uh, revealed that Almost within a week, he had found a new job within the government. Yeah. So Renskeleite brought this point up in the debate with Fair the enough. prime minister. Um, and she said it was uh, just incomprehensible that someone who is responsible for such a disaster, such a disaster could just, disaster could just so, so easily get another job. Yeah. Uh, but Rutte said uh, that we should stop um, attacking public servants in, in, in such a way and that... Uh, yeah, we should respect um, um, the people who sort of dedicate their life to to public service. Yeah. I I think he also has a point there, but they really clashed over this. And at some point, Rutte even called her Renske, yeah, which is uh, not, not very unheard of, yeah, uh, very unparliamentary. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was a big clash over that. I think they both have a point. It's it's just strange that this guy who 
um, made well, a mesh in such a way is able to find a new job within a week and uh, you all know, these people all these people were sitting years. in the hall yeah. in, the, in the room um, they, they had spent years to turn every coin around yeah, in order to, try to pay to figure back this out. Yeah, so yeah. yeah I don't know it's uh, it's complicated it's complicated yeah I guess we will uh, we will see sort of sort of what they um, what they come up with and hopefully things will get a bit a bit more streamlined and like clear do you have a good alternative for the Tuschlager system yeah universal basic income basically I mean I think that you could make an argument maybe not for expressly a universal basic income but I also know like f- not in a sort of scientific way, but sort of on a, in an anecdotal way about like people who are applying for out hearings and like these kinds of stuff that like the system can also be quite onerous and difficult and complicated, which some of the argument of course is, is that you should make this onerous and difficult for people because it discourages cheating, which is true. But in order to make a system onerous and complicated, you have to have people on the other side who are doing that, which means that like, there's a lot of administrative costs to checking these things for fraud. Yeah. I mean, obviously what happened with the Romania and Bulgaria situation is like pretty complicated um, and that you should not, you know, obviously you don't want people just coming here and then like taking a bunch of money in this way. Um, but I suspect that like, you know, maybe not paying things out directly immediately and then catching up with fraud. But, you know, if you only took a, a couple of weeks to figure this out and then yeah. paid it out yeah. and then found out at the end of the year that it was a problem and then cut these people off, that there's probably a cost benefit somewhere along the way that yeah. says preventing I, the fraud up front is not actually financially worth it in the same way. Yeah, um, I, saw, I saw some proposal of... Someone who said maybe we shouldn't just um, hand out the full one hundred percent of the benefits yeah. after application, but only seventy percent. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, I, I guess that will also make it. I mean, I already see the headlines of people who 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 uh, kept receiving seventy percent of the right. benefits, even though they had been confirmed to um, uh, be eligible to receive 100%. I mean, yeah. I already see a lot of. It's a difficult thing to say, and I mean, I think the other thing that's that's that can be challenging is, is that most of the people who are receiving benefits are people who are struggling in some way, right? So they are people who are out of a job. They are people whose kids are in daycare and kids are exhausting and expensive. And like... Those are the people where the benefits are invented for. Right, exactly. Yeah. And we want as a society, right, that like... I mean, the reason that you want the childcare benefits to stick around is because you want people to be able to work. Otherwise, you're going to like lose a lot of people in the workforce, and we know that this is bad. Um, the reason that you want to have, you know, sort of outcaring and these kinds of stuff is so that you know you know that people lose their jobs. Like, what happens? You know, the the cost to society of having somebody's house get foreclosed on and like their kids having to move school and all this other kinds of stuff is like not worth like. The difference, right? This is why we have decided that it's like better to like sort of pay these kinds of things. Um, yeah, I don't exactly know what the solution is, but I suspect that people smarter than we are and more knowledgeable about these things have come up with more streamlined yeah. ways to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, there will be something good between yeah. the uh, alternatives that Rutte will come up yeah. with. Yeah, I mean, especially with the uh, the the childcare thing. I mean, a lot of these things like it seems pretty straightforward right like how you can say well this is how much money we're paying in childcare a month right like you have to you have to pay this presumably most of these people are paying it online like you have yeah. an invoice it's not that it seems to me that it wouldn't be that difficult to yeah. or directly um transfer the money to the daycare yeah or just say that like you know maybe you take away i mean this is often also an unpopular thing but also from an administrative perspective makes things way is take away some of the means testing that's here right so you just say like we know that the average daycare costs, I don't know what it is, 2,000 euros a month. If you have one kid, we're just going to give whatever daycare you want to, like 2,000 euros a month. It does not matter if you make 100,000 euros a year or if you make 20,000 yeah, euros yeah. a year. Then you come up with the... Then you don't have to worry about all this income no, stuff. Just every true. kid gets a tax credit. Like, But yeah, we, we want these benefits to be progressive, to of course. To be progressive, and of that course. also yeah. makes things uh, yeah. automatically more complicated. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that there is... I, I wrote an article a few years ago about the Sociala core housing situation here and that one of the things that the, a lot of people that I talked to said was it used to be basically that at some point in your life everybody basically lived in this because you when you were a young person first starting out this is yeah. like where you ended up right and so the perception was like this was just like a normal part of life and that there were some people who never like got out of social housing either because they were disabled or 
they couldn't get their lives together to get like more higher paying jobs or, just didn't or whatever, move. or they just didn't want to move, whatever the reason was. But the, the dis- level of discrimination towards social housing was much lower when like basically everybody had some direct contact with it. Hmm. And as we've reduced the amount of social housing stock in this country and made it more stringent, and now it's like becoming really only the poorest people in society who have contact with it, all of a sudden it starts to get like very stigmatized. And so that what these people were saying about social housing was is that, you know, if we could make it less stigmatizing, then it's Hmm. like easier to convince people to do it. And I think that that's the same with like a lot of benefits, which is that like, we don't consider the money that I get every month for the hippo. Why is this word so complicated? <laughs> hippo take rent off. Not even word yeah. is complicated. Also, the calculation. The gal- it right, is but you don't consider it like welfare, right? Even though it is. No. I mean, it's the government giving me money. Like, yeah, SPA always called it the the villa subsidy. Yeah, the villa subsidy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can look around my lovely house and see how much of a villa it's it not is. a villa. It's not a villa. Um, but you know, it's not a thing that gets a lot of uh, uh, side eyeing from politicians and stuff because it is a thing that mostly like middle class and upper class people get, right? Like, if we just had a system where like everybody got that for childcare and uh, hmm. stuff, then maybe that would be, or healthcare and stuff, that maybe that would be, we would have the same sort of attitude towards yeah. it. Yeah. It's all very complicated. It's very complicated. And we're not going to solve this on this Thursday night. And not on a Thursday night. No. Maybe we could have on a Friday morning. Yeah, maybe then we will night. solve it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can ask Mark Rutte to come over and Yeah, Mark Rutte should come on together. the podcast and I tell agree. me about his yeah, ideas. Yeah, I think so. Well. Or Wopke Hoekstra. Or Wopke Hoekstra. Which really, be... any Dutch politician. Yeah. We're welcome to have yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. If you're a Dutch politician and you're listening to this, send us an email. Podcast at dutchnews.nl. Tell, yeah. us, uh, tell us about why you want to come on the podcast. Yes. Well, or, even... or, or just tell that you're a politician and we will force you to come here. Yeah, that's definitely true. Or I'll just show up at your office with a microphone. <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I've been known to do that. <laughs> well, that's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. Um, if you want to help us out, and of course you want to, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. Please and, give us some money. And uh, please give us money. You can back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You could just slip envelopes full of cash through my mailbox or, also. Or mine. If you want to avoid the blasting deeds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Um, and if you are a patron, then you can uh, earn a free shout out on the podcast and we will ask all your questions. My thanks to Molly Quell. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. What are we going to talk about this week, Paul? We will just talk about sexing pandas. That's, That's true. It's just just panda that. sex. This is the panda sex podcast. Yes, it's on. the panda sex uh, podcast. <laughs>